I want you to open up your Bibles today to the book of Colossians chapter three, verse one. Colossians 3, one will be there in just a second. Excuse me. A um, few verses before we get there, but that's where we're gonna be digging in. We're continuing our series we're calling Heaven and Hell. Uh, last week, we looked primarily at the words of Jesus where he gave a very graphic description of hell that he believed was a very real place. Um, if you missed last week, strongly encourage you to go listen to that. It's a good foundation for what we're talking about. Now, next week, we're gonna be preaching on heaven, what heaven's gonna be like and what we're gonna be doing when we get there. It's gonna be a lot of fun. Uh, it's gonna be super encouraging, so be sure and come next week for the end of our series. But today, I'm gonna just jump in and tell you what our topic is, kind of the main point of the sermon this week, and it's this. I want you to walk out of here today with this thought that I need to spend more time in my life thinking about my death and thinking about eternity. That's it. You see, it's very biblical, but the concept today is this, that I need to spend more time in my life thinking about my death and thinking about eternity. And um, that's it. That's the point of the message today. One of the things we talked about last week is how we've stopped doing that. That as a generation, we've stopped thinking about the doctrines of eternity, which is a very different story than generations that have gone before us. I give you guys a quote from the great theologian Jonathan Edwards from the 1700s. <clears throat> Let me give you one more of his quotes today. Actually, I think I have two. I can't remember. A lot of Jonathan Edwards quotes over this series. But anyway, he was awesome. But it says this. It says, it becomes us to spend this life only as a journey towards heaven to which we subordinate all other concerns of this life. Let me read it again. He says, it becomes us to spend this life only as a journey towards heaven to which we subordinate all other concerns of this life. And so his point is this. If we're gonna live 50, 60, 70, maybe 80 years, 90, if we're really, really blessed, and then eternity starts. Now get your mind around that word. Eternity. Forever. Trillions of years. If we're gonna spend 50, 60, 70, 80 years on this earth and then forever, his point is that it behooves us to invest every single day of this life into the coming eternity. Y'all with me? That's what he's saying. But honestly, how many of us do that? How many of us do that? How many of us could honestly say that we live our lives only as a journey to heaven in which we subordinate all other concerns of this life? I think the truth is, is that most of us live in this life like the next one doesn't even exist. Another thing I talked about last week is one of the reasons that I think that's happening, that most of us um, live in this life like the next one doesn't exist is for, for a lot of reasons, pastors have quit teaching on the doctrines of heaven and hell and eternity. So I wanna read to you a quote from a sermon from Charles Spurgeon. Now Charles Spurgeon is one of my heroes. He was probably the greatest preacher to ever live outside of Jesus, pastor in the 1800s in England. It's this, this, uh, this quote that I'm gonna give you. This was just a normal Sunday for him. This wasn't like a series that he did where he got a graphic slide. You know, hey guys, we're gonna talk about hell. So put your seatbelt on. This is just a normal Sunday for Charles. But I want you to listen to this. This is intense. I'm gonna read it to you. He was preaching and he says, 
There was a dreadful dream in which a righteous mother once had, and she told it to her children. She thought the judgment day had come and the great books were opened, and they all stood before God and Jesus Christ, and God said, separate the chaff from the wheat. Put the goats on the left, those are non-believers, put the sheep on the right, those are the believers, and the mother dreamed that she and her children were standing just in the middle of the great assembly. And the angel came and said, I must take the mother for she is a sheep. She must go to the right hand, but the children are goats. They must go to the left. Her children clutched her and said, mother, must we part? Mother, must we be separated? She then put her arms around them and seemed to say, my children, I wish if it were possible to take you with me. But in a moment, the angel came and touched her. Her cheeks were instantly dried. And now, overcoming natural affection, being rendered sublime, resigned only to the will of God, she said, my children, I taught you well. I trained you up. And you forsook the ways of God. And now all I have to say is amen to your condemnation. Therefore, the children were snatched away and she saw them in perpetual torment while she was in heaven. And then he ends this illustration by talking to the young men of the congregation. And he says, young man, what will you think when the last day comes and you hear Christ say, depart, you cursed. And there will be a voice just behind the throne shouting amen. And when you inquire from whom the voice came, you will find it was your mother. We don't preach that way anymore, do we? That's pretty intense. We don't preach that way anymore. But here's the crazy thing, is that every single thing that he just talked about, every single principle that he just preached is remarkably biblical when you look at it. And so... He preached on the subjects of heaven and hell. He preached on them regularly. And the reason that he preached on them regularly is because, listen, don't miss this. Because he knew the power and he knew the impact that you thinking about your eternity would have on your ability to make a difference in this world for the gospel in this life. He knew the power and the impact of you thinking and setting your mind on eternity would have on your ability to live this life for the glory of God. <clears throat> That's why I did it. So why don't pastors preach that way anymore? Well, I think there's a couple reasons, but one of them is they're scared to death to preach the difficult things of Scripture because they're scared to death to offend you. Because if they offend you, then you might leave their church. And why would people leave the church for a pastor teaching on some of the difficult things in the scripture. It seems like to me that if there's some difficult things that are said in here and this is the truth, which I believe it is, that you'd want to hear it. But why? Why are people like, man, I don't know if I can handle that. Well, in 2 Timothy 4.3, watch what Paul says. He says, for the time will come when they, those are people in the church, for the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. Paul's saying there's coming a day, which I'm convinced is probably already here, when people will no longer tolerate the difficult things that this book that I hold in my hand says. But what they're gonna do 
is they're going to gather for themselves teachers that will tell them not what God wants them to know, but what they want to know because they want to live their life the way they want to live, not the way that God wants them to live. And so they'll find a teacher that will tickle their ears, the scripture says. Now, here's the deal, just so you know where I'm coming from on this. Um, Honestly, guys, I love you, but I'm going to say this anyway. I would rather offend you and you leave the church knowing the truth. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I, I, I'm, I'm being honest here. I'm not trying to be mean or just saying I would rather teach to you the whole counsel of this book and you get offended and leave knowing the truth than for you to sit in this church your whole life hearing a bunch of nonsensical fluff and die a happy church attender and go to hell. That, that's what, and so we're gonna teach the book and there's some hard things in the book but we don't talk about them anymore, okay? Here's another reason. We've stopped talking about the doctrines of, of heaven and hell, and it's this. Um, guys, Satan knows his time is short. The battle's already been won at the cross and the resurrection, and we're waiting on the return of Christ, which we're gonna talk about next week. Satan knows his time is short, and so the last thing he wants in this short window of time is for you to be a person that subordinates all the concerns of your life for the pursuit of your heavenly journey. He doesn't want you living that way. Satan's goal is to get you so focused on this life, your marriage, your school, your relationships, your fun, your hobbies, your stuff, your house, your 401k. He wants to get you so focused on this life that you're not even thinking about the next one. And so how's he gonna do that? How's he gonna get you so focused on this life that you don't think about the next one, which is really important, gonna find out here in a minute. And here's one of the ways he's gonna do it. He's gonna lie to you. He's gonna lie to you. Now turn, uh, don't turn there. John 8, 4. I want you to listen to how Jesus describes the character of Satan. It's in John 8, 4. Jesus is speaking. And he says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth. Now watch this. Jesus said, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so Jesus says, hey guys, there's something you need to know about Satan and his character. He's a liar. He lies. And Jesus says, as a matter of fact, there is no truth in him. And so if something's coming out of his mouth, you can take it to the bank that what's coming out of his mouth is a lie. And so listen, in order to keep you from being a Christian that subordinates every concern in your life to the pursuit of the heavenly journey, which God's calling us to do, Satan's gonna lie to you. Now what's he gonna lie about? What's he gonna lie about? Don't turn there, listen, Revelation 13, 6. Revelation 13, 6 is describing uh, the satanic beast. I won't get into all the details of that, but the satanic beast and the writer of Revelation, John, tells us what Satan lies about. Revelation 13, six, it says it, that satanic beast, opened its mouth to utter blasphemies, those falsehoods, against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. Now that's interesting. 
Jesus tells us Satan's a liar. If he's speaking, he's lying. And what the scripture says in Revelation is one of the things that Satan's gonna lie about is God's name. Now, what does that mean? Why in the world would Satan lie about God's name? Well, here's what that means. Throughout the scripture, your name was synonymous with your character. And so what that's saying is that Satan is gonna lie to you about the character of God. He's gonna lie to you about the nature of God. Why? Because he wants you to believe wrong things about God. We say that from the very beginning. God created Adam, uh, the Garden of Eden. He put Adam and Eve in it. And he looks at him and he says, hey, you can eat anything you want, but don't eat this one tree. And what does Satan do? He rolls up and he starts lying. He's like, hey, Adam and Eve, did God really say you couldn't eat that tree? Like, did he really say that? Did he really say that you're gonna die Seems like a little bit of an exaggeration. You're not gonna die. You see what he's doing? He's lying about the character and the nature of God, trying to get Adam and Eve to think that God's word isn't true. From the very beginning, he's a liar. So he lies about God's nature and his character. But look at this next part of the verse. It's really interesting. Revelation 13, six, it says, he opened, it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies or falsehood against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. So the next thing Satan lies about, and that's really interesting, is he lies about the dwelling of God. Where is God's dwelling? That's not a trick question. It's in heaven. So one of the things the scripture teaches us in Revelation is that one of the things that Satan's gonna lie about is heaven. He's gonna try to get you to minimize its importance in your life. He's gonna to try to think, get you to think that it doesn't exist. He's gonna to try to get you to not even think about it. it. Says he lies about the dwelling of God. Now it makes sense that Satan would lie about the character of God, but why in the world would Satan lie about heaven? Why would he lie about heaven? So here's what I'm gonna do with the rest of my time together today, our time together. I'm gonna to give you three reasons why Satan lies about heaven and why he does not want you Spending time thinking about heaven in this life. Okay, that's it. And we'll be done. Reason number one, the Satan does not want you thinking about heaven. And by the way, this sermon is called Heaven and Hell, What Satan Does Not Want You to Know About Heaven. Okay, reason number one, Satan doesn't want you thinking about heaven is because to think about heaven and think about it often is a command of scripture. Sage Mott, did you know that? Did you know that to think about heaven and to think about it often is actually a command of scripture on your life as a believer? We see that in Colossians 3. So let's check it out together. Colossians 3.1. Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It's command of scripture. He starts off by saying, if you've been raised with Christ. And so here's what that means. He's just saying, hey, if you've been saved, if you're a person that's been given a new life in Christ Jesus, and he's like, all right, everybody, if you've been given a new life in Christ, about to put a command on you. If you've been given a new life in Christ, if you're a Christian, there's something you need to be doing. What are we doing? He says, if then 
You've been raised with Christ. Seek. If you're a person that's been raised with Christ, given a new life in Christ, you're supposed to be seeking something. Now, that word seek is important. It's a present tense, active verb in the Greek. So he tells us that we're to seek. It's a present tense, active verb. And a present tense, active verb is something that you do right now. Check this out. Right now, every day, continually and diligently. That's what a present tense, active verb means. It's something you're doing right now, every day, continually and diligently. Okay, so if you're a person that's been raised with Christ, you're supposed to be seeking something right now, every day, continually and diligently. So what church are you and I, as people that have been raised with Christ, supposed to be right now seeking every day, continually and diligently? He tells us in Colossians 3.1, he says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek, active tense, active present tense. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Hey guys, where is Christ seated at the right hand of God? It's in heaven. Well, here's what the scripture just commanded us to do. It said, if you've been raised with Christ, you are to right now, every day, continually and diligently seek heaven. That's what that says. It's a command. Now, what does it look like? What does it look like for me to every day continually seek heaven? Well, in the next verse, he tells us kind of practically what that looks like for you and me. Look at Colossians 3, 2. Next verse, he says, set your minds. Set your mind. Fix your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. And so the Holy Spirit, inspired word of God, guys, it couldn't be any clearer that as a believer, as a Christian right now, every day, continually and diligently, you are to set your mind on heaven. It's a fascinating verse. Because seriously, how often do you guys think about heaven? How often, seriously, how often do you think about it? I don't know about you, but I think about it in two places. I think about it in heaven and funerals, three. Funerals, when I got to preach on it, and during a worship song. You know, uh, we've been there 10,000 years. I'm like, yeah, heaven's going to be awesome. It's the only time I think about it. But what the scripture is saying is that we're supposed to be thinking about it and actually setting our minds every day on heaven. But we don't do that. So what does that look like for us? I want to give just one practical example of where I've seen somebody do this. It's my wife. Jennifer, um, now this is gonna shock you guys, but my wife, Jennifer and I, which by the way, we've married 25 years last week, so happy anniversary, baby. That's a long time to be married to me, I'm just saying. It's come a shock to you, but we get in arguments sometimes, and, and when we get in arguments, what she'll do sometimes when we're just kind of taking some time out is she'll go into a room, and I was listening one time, and she was blaring worship music. But it wasn't just any worship music. It was a playlist of songs that she had made about heaven. She called it her heaven playlist. It was just a bunch of songs from a bunch of different artists specifically about heaven. And so she'd get an argument, some, you know, take some time, she'd go listen to her heaven playlist. And at first, it really offended me, honestly. 
Because I was like, like, this woman thinks it's so hard to be married to me that she wants to go to heaven, right? <laughs> that she's going into her room and praying, dear God, please take me home <laughs> so that I don't have to go be married to this man anymore. In Jesus' name. But I found out that that's not really her heart behind it. She'll be the first person to tell you that she doesn't, listen, she doesn't listen to songs about heaven to escape the world. She listens to songs about heaven to endure the world. She listens to songs about heaven, listen, to give her the strength to keep fighting for her marriage in those moments where she sometimes may not want to. She sets her mind on things above to remind her and to give her the strength to be a better mom and to be a better friend and to be a better woman of God and a better believer. And so there's something about reminding yourself that there's only like a few short days so you're gonna be in the presence of Jesus. There's something about reminding yourself about that. It's just a few short days. So I'm gonna be in the presence of Jesus that empowers you to endure and walk victoriously through this world, and that's why Satan doesn't want you doing it. That's why Satan doesn't want you to do it. That's why he hates it, and that's why the Bible commands it. The Bible commands it, Satan hates it, because Satan knows that if you become a person that sets your mind on things above, that you will become a powerful weapon for the kingdom of God right here on earth. <clears throat> so that's number one. Here's number two, to think about heaven and to think about it often produces in us a holy urgency. We're commanded to do it, but one of the things that it does when we set our minds on things above, when we think about heaven, we think about eternity, we think about the end of our days and the next life, that produces in us a holy urgency. And if you look at the, the last 2,000 years of church history, here's what you find that people that had the greatest impact for God here on earth were the people that thought the most about heaven. And listen to this quote by C.S. Lewis. He said, if you read history, you'll find that Christians who did the most for the present world were those who thought the most about the next. The apostles themselves who set foot the conversion of the Roman Empire the great men who built up the Middle Ages and the evangelicals who abolished the slave trade all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. Listen carefully to this last part. He says, it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. It's largely because people have stopped thinking about the other world, that they've become ineffective in this one, which is an interesting quote because it's in direct opposition to a pretty famous quote from here on earth. You ever heard the statement, she's so heavenly minded that she's no earthly good? He's so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good? That is one of the most satanic statements that's ever been uttered. Because what the scripture is telling us, guys, and what history is telling us is that the people that are the most heavenly minded are gonna be the ones that do the most earthly good for the name of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, the scripture teaches us that there's a direct connection 
between you realizing how short your life is and realize how quickly um, heaven is coming and setting your mind on that end and the urgency for God with which you live your life. There's a connection. You realizing the shortness of your life and the urgency with which you live your life for the glory of God. Let me turn, uh, read to you real quick. Psalms 39.4, Psalms 39.4. David's talking to the Lord. He says, oh Lord, make me know my end. Make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. He says, behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. That's such a fascinating request that David makes of God. He says, God, will you show me my end? Basically saying, will you show me when I'm going to die? Will you show me how short my life is that it's so fleeting? And he says, will you show me? Will you reveal to my heart that my life is just like a hand breath? What's a hand breath? Well, you ever breathe on a cold window on a cold winter's day? You breathe on it, it fogs up, boom, it instantly goes away. David said, Lord, would you reveal to my heart that that's what my life is like? That I'm here, boom, and then I'm gone. Lord, would you show me that? And in the next verse, he tells us why. He's asking God to show him his end and reveal that his life's so fleeting. He said, because most men just walk about like phantoms. What does that mean? He's saying that most people, everybody look at me. He's saying, the reason I want you to show me that my life is fleeting, because most men waste their lives. Most men waste their entire lives. His point is that if you don't spend time thinking about the shortness of your life, you don't spend time thinking about your death, if you don't spend time thinking about eternity, there's a solid chance you're gonna waste your life. Because think about it. As you're sitting here today, if you think in the back of your mind, man, I, I got another 40 years. I got another 50 years. Some of you youngsters, I got... 60, 70 more years, 80 maybe more years left, and I got all this time in the world. You think you've got all this time, you're probably not gonna live with an urgency for the glory of God every day of your life. There's a, there's a solid chance you're gonna waste a day or two here and there. But I want you to think about this. What if today, at the end of the service, somebody walked up to you and somehow let you know tomorrow, you're going to die. How would it change the way you live this afternoon and tonight? It'd change everything. If you knew you had a short time left, how would it change the way you read the Bible? How would it change the way you talked to your spouse? How would it change the way that you shared your faith? How would it change the way that you watched television? It would change everything. Because there's a direct connection in you realizing how short your life is and the urgency with which you will live your life. And David's saying, God, I want to live that way. Listen to the final quote here by Jonathan Edwards. He said, I will live every day as I wish I had done when I come to die. I want to live every day as I wish I had when I close my eyes and death. Here's what that means. He's simply saying, I want to live every day of my life like it were my last day. It would change everything. 
And the way that we're able to do that is to set our mind on things above. And Satan does not want you to do that. He doesn't want you to live that way. He doesn't want you to think that way. He doesn't want you thinking about your death or the shortness of your life or eternity because he knows if you do, you're not gonna waste your life pursuing the passing stuff of this world that doesn't matter. And it's gonna be gone in just a few short years. But you'll be one of those rare, rare people that changes history because you live with a white hot passion for the glory of God and people like that scare him to death. But that's what we're called to. To think about heaven and think about it often produces in us a holy urgency, last thing. Reason number three, to think about heaven and to think about it often robs you of your fear of death. It robs you of your fear of death. Now, you young folks here, y'all probably don't ever think about death, but when you, when you get old and bust like me, it starts creeping in the back of your mind. And we have a fear of it. But here's the thing. If you become a person that sets your mind on things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, and you start thinking about heaven and dwelling on heaven and thinking about eternity, something really powerful is going to happen in your life. You're going to lose your fear of death. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through his death he might destroy the one who has the power over death, that's the devil. So Jesus Christ died on the cross in the flesh, destroyed the power of death, and then watch what he also did, the cross and the resurrection. He said, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He's saying that one of the things that Satan does and one of the ways that he keeps us in bondage and keeps us in slavery is our fear of death. And because we're afraid to die, we don't think about our death. We don't think about eternity. We kind of put it aside. And because we're not thinking about eternity, you're thinking about our death, we don't live with a holy urgency. Let me ask you a question. Besides Jesus, what man is, I'm really, I want, you to, I want you to tell me. Besides Jesus, what man in the New Testament had the greatest impact for the kingdom of God? Paul, I think it's Paul. I wish it was Peter, but it's probably not. I love Peter. I'm a lot like Peter. We'll talk about that another day. But anyway, I think it's the Apostle Paul. Wrote most of the New Testament, shared the gospel everywhere, planted churches. The gospel spread like wildfire through the, the, the known world because of Paul. And now listen to me, don't miss this. Maybe one of the primary reasons he was so powerfully used of God is because the man had no fear of death. He's like, I've been shipwrecked, I've been beat down, uh, I've been put in prison, been put in chains, and it was awesome. (laughs) So why? Why is is he like that? Well, listen, it's really interesting. Look at Philippians 1.21. Paul's in prison. He's in prison, and he's writing to the church in Philippi. Philippians 1.21, he says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is it's gain. If I'm, I'm to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. <clears throat> now watch what he's saying here. We've heard this verse a lot, but, but tune in. He said, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two. But then watch what he says. He says, my desire 
is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Now listen, we've heard this verse so many times, live as Christ, die as gain. We're not thinking about the unbelievable reality of what he just said. He said, I got a choice here. I can stay and be alive. That's one of my choices. Or the other choice is to die and be with Jesus. And what he just said, guys, is that if I had to choose, I'd rather die. I'd rather die so that I can go be with Jesus where he's at. And so listen, honestly ask yourself the question, how many of you could say that? Now, I'm not talking about like you get it cognitively because my guess is that the overwhelming majority of you in here cognitively believe that it's better to be with Jesus than live on the planet. I'm talking about if you were given the choice. If you're given the choice, keep on living, more Christmases, more vacations, more time with the kids and the grandkids, trips to the beach, all that stuff, or to die and go be with Jesus, you'd be like, man, I'm choosing to go be with Jesus because that is so much better. We don't live that way, do we? We don't live that way. I mean, how many of us, seriously, well, let, me, let me say this. I'll just tell you one quick story. I, I know I, didn't, I don't live that way. When I got the call that I had cancer at 31 with little babies, God calls and says, Matt, we, uh, we found a 1.9 centimeter malignant tumor in your appendix. I'm gonna tell you what I didn't do. I didn't hang up the phone and go, woo, yeah, <laughs> praise God. That just made my day. I'm gonna die. That's not what we do. It's not how we respond, but listen, Paul did. Now listen, why, listen why, why was he able to say that with so much conviction that if you give me the choice between living and dying, I would choose to die and to be with Jesus for that is far better. Everybody look at me. The reason that he was able to say that is because the man saw heaven. I'm convinced. Not only did he see Jesus on the road to Damascus, that's part of it, but we find out later the dude actually saw heaven with his own eyes. Let me read this to you. He talks about it. 2 Corinthians 12, 2, he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not um, utter. Now, Paul was being really humble here, but he was talking about himself. And here's what he's saying. He was like, well, I was having a quiet time one day and it was apparently a really good quiet time because I got caught up into, and he calls it paradise. For you to use that word, it's gotta be a pretty solid place. I got caught up in paradise. Well, I was in my body. I don't know. I don't know if I was in the spirit. I don't really know. Only God knows. But he said, look, it was so incredible. And it was so indescribable. 
because I heard things that I don't even know how to articulate to you. I saw things with my own eyes that I don't even know how to describe. And then a few years later, he finds himself in a prison in Philippi and he starts writing to the church in Philippi and he goes, hey guys, here's my dilemma. If it means that I have to stay here in this place so that more people can hear about Jesus, I'll do it. But let me just tell you where I wanna be. Where I wanna be is in that place. I don't wanna be in this place. I wanna be in that place because I've seen that place and that place blows this place out of the water. And so, like prison guards, if you want to kill me, I'm cool with that. You want to chop off my head, chop off my head. If you want to burn me at the stake, burn me at the stake. Because if you burn me at the stake, I get to go to that place. And I've seen that place. And that place is far better than this place. So for crying out loud, light your fire. And burn me at the stake if you need to. Now, here's the question. Who says that? Who says that? What kind, of, what kind of man says, oh, death, where is your victory? What kind of man says, oh, death, where is your sting? What kind of man mocks death? He's talking smack to death. What kind of man does that? It's either a man that's stark raving mad or he's a man that's been set free from the fear of death because he saw heaven. And that's why he says, hey guys, set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. And you won't be afraid anymore. So to think about heaven as a command of scripture, to think about heaven produces in us holy urgency. To think about heaven robs you of your fear of death. And if you are a person that will do that, you will become an unstoppable force for the kingdom of God. And I want to end today by telling you just a quick story and I'm done. Years ago, years ago, I read the autobiography of Bill Clinton. And I don't remember really anything about the autobiography, but I remember one story, and I've never forgotten it, kind of talking about this subject. Clinton was president, and Billy Graham called President Clinton one day and said, hey, my best friend in the whole world, I've been friends with for years and years, decades, he's dying. He's dying of cancer. He's in his last days, and I know I'll never get to see him again, so I want to go say, uh, talk to him, and would you come with me? Of course, Clinton, President Clinton said yes, and so the two of them go. They go into the room. President Clinton says hi to the dying man and then goes and sits down into the corner. Clinton wrote that Billy Graham went there and stood beside his friend's bed, and they talked for a little while. And after a few minutes... They both got quiet. And Clinton said that Billy Graham leaned down and started whispering in his friend's ear. And he said, hey, I know this is the last time that we're gonna see each other here on earth. But when you pass, I want you to wait for me 
I'll be there soon. And he says this. He said, I'll meet you at the eastern gate of the holy city. And he turned around and he walked out the door. He didn't say goodbye because he didn't have to because it wasn't goodbye. And I don't know this for a fact, but I have a sneaking suspicion that when Billy Graham came to the last hours and days before his death, he was not afraid. He'd lost his fear in death. His fear of death because he knew when he closed his eyes in death, he was gonna see heaven, this place that he played a role in so many people going to. He knew when he closed his eyes in death, he was gonna see his wife. When he closed his eyes in death, he was gonna see his friend again. And more importantly than anything, when he closed his eyes in death, he was gonna see Jesus, the love of his life. I wanna die that way. I don't know about you, but I wanna die that way. But more importantly, I wanna live that way. The Lord wants us to live that way.